I've got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, our guest is Maya Azucena, a magnetically inspirational woman who is known for making music that uplifts the soul. A victim is someone that whose power was taken away from them. Mm-hmm. A survivor is someone who can celebrate because they've made it to the other side of the uh, abuse. A warrior is someone who's taken their power back. But first, if you've been picking up what we're putting down on this podcast, please do let us know um, in all of the ways that we do that these days, uh, rating us and reviewing us on all the platforms where you listen um, and following us on the social medias at What the Folk Pod and all of the things that really help get the word out to your friends about us. We're going to get into this really fun conversation uh, and really uplifting conversation with Maya. Uh, But first, let's start with one of Maya's songs. It's called Fearless, Maya Azucena. shortcomings because you've owned them it is loving yourself enough to accept failure is just one rainy day and keep it moving fearless it is not the absence of fear it is courage in its face here we are with maya azucena among several awards for her music and humanitarian outreach azucena garnered a grammy certificate for contributing her four octave range and soul stylings to a feature performance with stephen marley on best reggae album of the year mind control Critically acclaimed Brooklyn native Maya is an 
avid independent touring artist, I'm guessing before per the time of corona, and songwriter performing globally, Maya is well known for humanitarian outlook and projects around the globe, which include special focus on women's and youth empowerment and domestic and sexual violence. Based on a personal commitment to help the world through her talent, most of Maya's songs are anthems that lend a voice to self-worth, empowerment, overcoming obstacles, and stepping into our fearless selves, which is so many of the reasons why we wanted to have her on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm so pleased and honored that you invited me and also that you are uh, feeling a connection to my calling I guess you know you have a connection feeling a connection to the, the things that make me inspired totally yeah totally so much solidarity there uh, I really I really was uh, inspired by your performance and the Veterans for Peace live stream uh, that we did on Giving Tuesday and uh, it really inspired me to check out more of your work and uh, and to just be completely uh, stoked to see someone out there being so outspoken and so powerful and so talented, you know, and also to be willing to donate your talents to raise money for anti-war veterans, <laughs> which is amazing. You know, thank you so much for that. And in general, like, how is your apocalypse going? <laughs> <laughs> apocalypse. Wow. Well, if I view it as the apocalypse, I can say that I did expect the apocalypse to be much worse. I mean, we do have <laughs> electricity and internet, so I always imagine the apocalypse to be missing, you know, basic uh, foundational things such as electricity. <laughs> give us but, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give it time. <laughs> be careful what you wish for, right? Mm. Um, you know, I'm from New York City, as you know, but I decided to quarantine and do those uh, months in Istanbul, Turkey. And I have an apartment here and it's been uh, generally peaceful. Um, I can say I'm thankful that my immediate family and friends um, haven't you know, suffered major loss from the effects of COVID in terms of health. But almost everyone I know has been impacted, you know, financially and career-wise by the uh, standstill that COVID created, um, especially fellow musicians and artists and anyone in the related fields, you know. But um, for me, I took the time to go inward I've always been very driven and very active in my schedule. And to suddenly have that time returned to me allowed me to kind of bask in the stillness and using that as a forum for being um, creating, for creating songs and for writing and for thinking and you know, going deeper on my own identity and, and why I'm here and, and kind of realigning with myself and viewing things from a deeper spiritual perspective. You know, it's like time for reflection, in other words. And um, I found this time to be fruitful, even though the finances have been quite the opposite. Uh, hard relate to that. <laughs> it's also been a, a pretty... 
a tough but creatively um, rich time, I think, for for me in many ways. Also, like, I don't know if you've been getting a little bit of the... Sometimes there's so much going on that I short circuit and I can't create anything because it's just too much input and overload. I don't know. Do you ever get into those spaces? You know, it's so funny that you say that because I really did specifically like ponder this subject during the this year, still 2020, which is unbelievable. It's like four years in one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. During this year... As Americans, we cannot omit the fact that we have been dealing with incredible political strife, incredible civil injustice and things like this um, and and, uh, a rise or a celebration of white supremacy, which just really Mm -hmm. is mind blowing and heartbreaking. And so um, I have so much to say that I found myself speechless for a lot of the year, it's like every feeling that I had, and, and it was so intense and so emotional, it all rushed to my throat at the same time. And then it was like, what am I going to say? Like, what can I say that's better than what someone else is saying? Or why should I say anything when other people are already saying wonderful things? Or do I even have a right to contribute to this conversation? Or the other side, I have so much that I want to contribute, but where do I begin? And it rendered me uh, kind of, um, like I said, speechless for a lot of the time. And it made me depressed because I'm feeling so much, but feeling like I'm not jumping in and, and contributing enough to take a stand or to help in some way, knowing that so many people are hurting and so many people are suffering. So I absolutely... Um, felt this feeling that you're talking about but when you're ready I would like to share how I turned the corner well I'm ready tell yeah. us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find my own little ways but I want to know yours <laughs> yeah I'd be interested in hearing this too because I kind of struggle with a similar thing and also just like the pressure to comment on everything like what you said about like maybe I should just let someone else speak right now you know Especially, like, and is that, yeah, you know, anyway, I would love to hear how you turn the corner. But I also respect what you're saying. Like, also let someone else take the stage. There are people yeah. who are well equipped to, to, to speak on those subjects who are very eloquent about it. Um, and so there is that, like, am I adding to the noise or am I actually, you know, contributing in a, in a, uh, in a productive way? And all of these things came to mind. But the turning of the corner was this. I had my first show in, like, I guess, eight months or something. And when I was invited to Russia to do some shows and... Uh, there was like a little window where they were like, their numbers were lower. So I could fly from Turkey to um, Moscow and it was like, it was possible. And I was in the taxi, in a taxi and uh, the taxi driver clearly could see that I'm foreign. And so he decided to put on some like music, probably for my sake, thinking I would like it, you know? And it was an American artist that I had never heard. And this guy had this rich, soulful, raw, dark voice that touched my soul. And he did it in such a unique way. And I can't explain it. Very bluesy, acoustic, heavy guitar, but heavy acoustic like guitar. 
after hearing his voice, I just opened up and I don't know what it was. It was a tipping point or if it was just this, this sonic healing. I don't know what, but I had this epiphany of, I have to say it in my way and stop censoring myself. Mm. I need to let it out exactly in my authentic voice because what I need to say in is in my own way and it being in my own way is relevant because it is, we are all unique, in other words. And mm. it unleashed this song that I had been trying to write for four years, mind you. The song is name is You Matter. It's so weird. I don't realize that I was doing it, but I was stopping myself, judging myself on my presentation instead of just releasing it in the way that it comes out uniquely from you and believing and knowing that your authentic voice and story are valuable and worthy to exist. Mm. Mm. that that I don't know how it came to me because his voice is so unique the, mm-hmm. the artist's name by the way is Sean James and Sean James okay. is not a soul artist he's not a hip-hop artist he's not considered a you know he's not a black music artist he's not in my genre but he put this combination of sadness and celebration and and fire and anger and angst and joy all in one performance and I was like yeah that's what I feel and that's what I want to say and so it just it was like a laxative or something it just let it out for me and uh, (laughs) (laughs) oh my god I love that (laughs) (laughs) it's so healthy you know music music music's laxative powers are extremely healthy (laughs) we need to clean out our systems (laughs) The GI tract of life gets really blocked up. <laughs> soul, soul enema. We need soul enemas. Oh, know? my God. Write that song, please. Soul enema. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And that song that you that you birthed as a result of that is absolutely amazing. I was just listening to it yesterday. And uh, along with a lot of your music, like, it's very clear that your authentic voice comes through in all of your songs. And I'm really glad that that one was able to come through because it's, it's so important. I, I feel like one of the things that I've, I've tried to soak up from um, participating as best I can in the Black Lives Matter movement here in the U.S. has been around joy and celebration and authenticity and like not looking at this movement as this like dark time but as a joyful time of uplifting the power that already exists and um and of celebrating you know the authentic selves that people are I think trying and succeeding and expressing better and better, you know, apocalypse notwithstanding, it's like it's bringing all of our authenticity to the surface because we have no fucking energy to be fake anymore. (laughs) I mean, it's energy and it's like you you have some hard decisions to make when you're sitting alone. A lot of people have been alone for months um, or separated from the people that you care for the most. And all of these things beg questions within you about your perspective on life, on, on what matters to you. And you start to think about what is 
my purpose, what is the purpose of the things that I do and act for. And, and so when you can answer those questions more clearly on the inside, then the way that you express yourself on the outside also becomes more clear. Mm -hmm. Um, And that song, uh, You Matter, is the name of the song that I was referring to that we're sharing. I actually thought a lot about that. I want to celebrate the beauty and joy of our legacy as Black Americans as indigenous peoples, as women, all of these things were embedded inside of it for me because at various times, all of us have been marginalized or, or um, kind of shut out or ignored or, or tried to have our voices silenced. This was sort of also an ode to our ancestors who stood up for the future and how we owe it to our ancestors to um to exist to be here not be silenced but to celebrate it and let there be some joy because joy is also an act of rebellion yes yes that is so true and you know so my middle name is joy actually emily joy yeah so joy is my middle name but and i've been trying to lean into it um more these days um because i actually relate more to that name than to my first name um which i've had to i don't know i've had a complicated relationship to with over the years both spelling and otherwise and um and I feel like right now it is the antidote, you know, joy is the antidote to all of this um, suffering that we're seeing right now and all of this sort of um, troubling instability that we've all got going on. And uh, and honestly, one of the things that brings me the most joy is being able to see how the newest evolutionary phase is sort of being birthed out of this out of the the tumult (laughs) and how uh, you know like all of all of these uh voices that you know we're trying to elevate and we're trying to use our own voices authentically are all like contributing to this like beautiful joyful chorus of like kind of like a big joyful fuck no in a way (laughs) no doubt I love what you're saying. And also, by the way, uh, embracing uh, the name that reflects your soul is important, by the way. I think that, um, you know, words are affirmations. And um, if you have to rename yourself or use a name that reflects your soul more eloquently, I think it's important because it keeps affirming you in, in daily. Every time someone says it, it reinforces something. And I think that that's I'm just just wanted to encourage you about that idea. Anyway, in this time of evolution, the importance of joy for me is also not to be naive and in denial of the struggle or the pain. It's that we are aware of the struggle and the pain, yet we choose joy, yet we choose beauty, and that in that Yet we choose peace, by the way. Mm. You know, Ahimsa, I believe, is the name that um, uh, Gandhi was using to, and it basically, it's peace as an act of resistance. Ahimsa. In a state of war, to choose peace is a, 
a move, a martial move, mm-hmm. but using utilizing peace in the face of the violence. So also acknowledging the struggle, acknowledging the pain, acknowledging all of it and still choosing beauty and still choosing joy is where there is this power, not Mm. pretending it's not that there is nothing wrong, but Mm -hmm. saying, you know what? I open myself up. I see all that is wrong yet. I turn, you know, I, I, I stand up in despite it. Yes. Oh yes. That so resonates. And also I feel like it's, it's speaking to the other song of yours that has been resonating with me. Um, fearless, where you talk about uh, fearlessness not being the absence of fear. Can you, can you quote yourself for me so I don't mess up your words? At one point in the song, I inserted a short poem that I wrote, and the last line is, fearless. It is not the absence of fear. It is courage in its face. It's not to say we are never afraid. It's not to say that we will never be faced with these debilitating uh, obstacle, obstacles, you know, things that fill us with dread or terror. But at the same time, that human spirit within us, that love within us steps forward anyway. And that fearlessness yes. is super powerful. It's the courage that steps forward despite the fear. So powerful and so true. Like as, as a, um, you know, as someone who has had to face involuntarily at certain points, like some of my most intense fears and stand up and just look at them and be like, okay, bring it, you know, that really, really resonates. And I think it's something that a lot of us are having to uh, come to come to grips with and uh, get really personally acquainted with. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I and that song uh, really was speaking to all the women that I met around the world, you know, because in, all right, we have issues in America with women's rights, but other countries, man, there, there, there are things that they're just on a whole nother level um, of what they're um, struggling with on a daily basis. And um, the societal norms haven't shifted yet, right? To mm-hmm. we've, We started a little bit, maybe a little sooner. And so I think about how the fabric of society, the, the foundation of society is held together by the, the women because the women are, I mean, we're, we are essential, essential workers. Yeah. <laughs> the original essential workers. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I, was, I spoke at schools and I said, imagine if one day all the women in this country just decided they didn't want to deal with their kids. Or, you know, on one day we just decided we didn't want to, you know, clean, you know, cook food or, you know, or whatever. And I mean, things would really fall apart. But what I'm saying is that the challenges are beyond what we can imagine also in terms of uh, sexual violence, in terms of abuse in the homes, in terms of so many things, poverty. And those women in the face of that still raise children and still go to work and still do what they must do. And this is the fearlessness that blows my mind. It's like mm-hmm. we do this instinctively. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of us bleed once a month 
while doing all of those other things as well, which is, you know, I think a thing that we're expected to just sort of um, assimilate into our lives, like as far as, you know, the, a, a lot of cultures that, uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not as well versed in understanding all of the different matrilineal societies and cultures that have arisen throughout the world or, you know, that the world began with. But, you know, it used to be that our, our natural cycles were honored and incorporated into our, you know, our entire life. And, um, and we've gotten away from that. And we don't honor that anymore. And we take all of the women out of our mythology. I was reading something this morning that a friend sent me about the reindeer women um, that were the basis for, you know, Santa Claus, uh, the, the, the shamans in uh, Russia and Mongolia that were, yeah, I, it was, I was just like, of course, of course, Father Christmas came from from women and Man, female can you reindeers. I will. I will definitely share yeah, that actually, link. I, 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 I w- yeah. woke up with it this yeah. morning. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I wanted to, I definitely want to say one thing uh, that a man probably will never be able to understand. I used to have really, really, really like bad, bad, bad cramps, like the, the kind that no matter what I did, I would faint I would fall out. I would vomit. I I couldn't walk. Like it was bad and it was just really bad. And a doctor explained to me that the pain that I was having was the equivalent of a heart attack. So I would just like to challenge any man to imagine that once a month, you're going to have a heart attack for like a whole year, actually for 20 years, 30 years, every month. Like imagine that, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and how, you know, if they could. <laughs> and the other thing about society is uh, <laughs> society, especially in a capitalist, you know, like environment, like doesn't respond to organic, uh, the organic nature of anything, not just women or our cycles, but just about the organic nature of anything. And because of that, we lose touch with um, nature. We lose touch with the way food's actually supposed to taste, mm-hmm. we lose so much. And then we also then have unrealistic expectations of our own lives. We are our organic beings, but we have been inserted into a way of life that doesn't honor the organic process. So when things are happening in life that are actually normal, we are being made to freak out because we forget that we're not robots and computers, you know, and so mm-hmm. we, being in touch with our or the fact reminding ourselves that we are organic beings and therefore we have organic processes that don't fit on a grid mm-hmm. is something that can change our lives, actually. Speaking of those organic processes, one thing I really like about your work is how you incorporate personal stories and really emphasize that power of storytelling to, I think, not only inspire empathy, but to make people feel, you know, less alone and make them feel more empowered. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal story, um, how you got interested in music, if you grew up in a musical household, and how you kind of developed this global consciousness and bigger sense of awareness about, you know, the values you wanted to bring into your work. Thank you. By the way, that was beautiful to hear. Um, 
as an independent artist, it's hard to tell how much of what I'm doing um, can be absorbed by a new fan or a new, you know, like that. So I love that you shared that with me. Um, well, I, you started singing when I was a little girl. It was something that was innate. Um, I, my family are not musicians, but I found out later that both my grandmother and my great grandmother had wanted to sing and didn't pursue it professionally. Hmm. So it was sort of maybe waiting to come out for a couple of generations. And so when I was young, I just automatically from the, as far as I can remember from age four was singing, memorizing songs, making up songs, rehearsing in my bedroom. Nobody was telling me to do this, by the way, I was just (laughs) doing it. (laughs) And then when I became old enough to be in, you know, school musical or those types of things, I was in every production. And then As time progressed, I ended up going to a high school. LaGuardia High School in New York City is a school that uh, teaches like classical um, conservatory training for the the arts. So I studied opera in high school. Um, And our teacher in high school was also a professor at Manhattan School of Music and Manus School of Music. So she was bringing like opera scouts to see me. But I knew that my voice could do opera, but I wanted to write and tell my own stories, as what you reflected back to me. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I started my own band. And all of this stuff is sort of like layered over the fact that my first serious relationship was very psychotic and abusive. It was a seven-year-long sentence. <laughs> It really, like, once I got out of the relationship, it really felt like I was released from prison. Um, And I really, I had PTSD. I had nightmares for more than four years after breaking up, leaving that, escaping, kind of, felt like. Mm. Um, So that kind of relationship became a backdrop for the rise of the warrior in me. I always considered myself to be a strong woman, even inside that kind of abusive relationship. I stayed because I said to myself, I can handle this. It's different perspective, but brought me the same results. There can be a woman that's afraid to leave and is filled with fear. And she's in an abusive relationship. I was like so strong and I'm thinking I can handle this. I can take it. So this guy is like, cutting me with knives and choking me and, and, and punching me, all this kind of crazy stuff. And I'm like, I can handle this. And I was in the same boat as someone who was afraid to leave. Um, but when I say the warrior in me grew, that pain uh, that I was experiencing helped me to understand, especially after leaving, like what I would share with any other woman or young, you know, young woman or lady who may be experiencing abuse. And I decided to reveal my painful stories because I felt that whatever embarrassment I might feel about my pains was worth it because I was already on the other side of it. And if it could help someone who was stuck inside of, of a miserable situation like I was, then it was worth it. It would be worth the risk that I could feel embarrassing myself Mm. because I felt 
it could help another young woman who doesn't realize that other women are going through this, you know, and all of these things sort of ended up in my songs. And then I had another epiphany that music is not just a career, but uh, a calling like the, my way I can help the world. Mm. So I used, started writing it consciously applying myself to writing songs that were meant to empower others, not just by mistake or not as a give back. Like people always talk about giving back, like doing something for the world is always an afterthought. But I thought of it like, well, what if I unite the two and and use my music and write music that was giving strength to other people. And it brought me on this journey that ended up being an international career. So there's so many more things to share, but I just want to make sure I'm not you know, what's our time like? And if I, oh, we got as much got time, time as we have. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. That, yeah. We're, we're up now. We're the coffee yeah. is kicked in now. I mean, we're, um, it's so important. I think like what you're saying about, you know, not allowing your fear to keep you from expressing and to actually allow your fear to inform your expression and like to, to inspire you to, uh, to tell your story so that others can, can heal through it. I mean, I've been grappling with a lot of those same questions, like putting together my first album in six years and coming off the tail of a, a divorce from an abusive person and feeling very, very nervous about like putting out some really fairly vulnerable songs and, you know, some of which touch on some of the abuse. There's just been a lot of me that's been like, oh my God, this is terrifying. And like, who even needs this? And why am I even doing this? And, and what I come back to is exactly what you're saying is like, if I can do this and I can put this out there and not let the fear of expressing it silence me, because that's me silencing myself, then I'm you know, hopefully allowing somebody else to hear their voice and and what I'm putting out there too. There is a phrase that I really love. Uh, it is turning your pain into power. Mm-hmm. I made up a saying that, and by the way, I make up sayings because they help me sort out my own things. So then I share them with people. But the reason that I came up with it was because it was me figuring things out. So this is something I would like to share. Um, a victim is someone that whose power was taken away from them. Mm -hmm. A survivor is someone who can celebrate because they've made it to the other side of the uh, abuse. A warrior is someone who's taken their power back. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I realize in language that we talk about is don't view yourself as the victim. You are at least a survivor because you've made it to the other side. And the warrior is the person that understands that we can take our power back. Mm. Mm. Speaking without fear. He never even left to begin with. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 We've can voluntarily hand it over, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that the power does not reside within, you know? Okay. So I was in Tanzania and because of my women's work, I was think and beautifully invited to a town hall meeting. The town hall meeting were plastic chairs of about 100 people put onto 
a, a, a lawn, basically, an outdoor setting at the back of a rest, outdoor restaurant. And the people that came to this meeting were women and men of all ages. So that means teenage boys to older men to women from this community in Tanzania near Arusha. And they were passing a microphone and sharing stories. And they invited me to speak. And I felt a little ashamed because I was like, what right do I have to say anything in this? I'm not from this community directly. And I don't want to offend anyone by thinking, you know, as an American that I'm coming in and announcing what you should or shouldn't do. Mm. But I decided that the best solution was to just tell my own story because we gain perspectives by hearing what other women have gone through. And a woman came up to me after I spoke. She was actually the organizer. And she, I believe, was a lawyer and a, a leader in the community. And she leaned over and she whispered to me. She says, I never told anyone this, but my story is like yours. I was the powerful woman and... And I was in an abusive relationship mm. and she had never confessed it on the mic to her own community, but something about the fact that I was able to share my story empowered her to release it. And that was so cool to see the um, effects of that. Yeah. And, and when you have those moments, it encourages you in the next time to be less afraid to share your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really speaks Mm. to the power of storytelling to really cut across, you know, these artificial things we call borders. (laughs) And um, I really like how much um, it seems like you have a really great sense of global humility, which I think is really rare for Americans, especially to even acknowledge that there's a world outside our borders, much less acknowledge that we have things to learn from the rest of the world. So I would love to hear kind of your journey into like, you know, doing a lot of this international work. Um, I know that's probably a really long story. So, you know, share as much as you'd like. Okay, well, I I will share um, kind of the launch into the international um, world for me. One thing that I was thinking about and sharing is that the music industry is one entree into a global career, right? Music industry, entertainment industry, the obvious Uh, path, you know, so you can get into festivals, you can do these types of things. But we forget that music is utilized and needed by people, not just in the entertainment industry. There is an international community of activists. There's an international community of women. There's an international community of people who do work, uh, to empower or build within, you know, human rights, et cetera. And I have had maybe equal amounts of work outside of the music industry as I have had inside the music industry by understanding this. Once my music became not just about the sales, but about helping people, then I was invited to sing in almost every kind of charity and benefit. And I would always agree because I wanted to build that up. And then I started to be invited to bigger and more, you know, substantial um, gatherings. These kind of steps also led me to the U.S. State Department 
There's a cultural affairs department within the U.S. government that creates budgets and grants to bring American culture to other countries. And this means that American embassies and all the other nations of the planet tend to have cultural programs. And I got invited the first time we did a five-week tour to... Uh, it included four or five countries. We went to Myanmar slash Burma, Burma, mm-hmm. Philippines, China, and Sri Lanka in one trip, in one tour. And I was hosted by, with my band, the American embassies in each country. And they booked us on public festivals, major stages, television shows, interviews, as well as community things like speaking and doing workshops at universities and and schools in a small village and all of this. And this exchange started to build a momentum for international relationships to where I kept those relationships. The first time I ever went to Russia was with the U.S. State Department. And now I have been back to Russia maybe 30 times uh, in the last five years because of a relationship that I had started the first time I went there. And these types of things build on top of each other like little patches on a quilt blanket. Every patch sewn together has its own story, but when you put it all together, it equals my career, this big blanket Mm -hmm. of things. But each little story is its own story But the psychology is this. The world is our market. Success doesn't need to be defined only by radio play in New York City Mm -hmm. or radio play in America. You know, the world, there are 8 billion people on the planet. Most of them like music. So if you think in that way, then you realize there's no need to just stay home. Go, Go to Tanzania. Why not? Go to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Why not? I've played in Suriname. I've played in Brazil. I played in London. I've played in Honduras. There isn't yeah. a limit. That's such a uh, wonderful way to look at, I mean, not only your music career, but just life in general as like, where's the limit? Why should there be one? Um, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, be out there in the world, like just wanting it will often, you know, open up avenues of, for it to happen. So that's absolutely wonderful that you've been able to um, let the State Department help you get your your music out, considering how, you know, sort of antithetical to the state it is. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I will tell you like a little backstory about that, too. Yeah. So the first time I went, because I'm fairly anti-establishment by nature, right? And I'm kind of always like bracing myself for some like, you know, am I going to get pulled aside? And are they going to tell me, you know, we'd really prefer if you said these things uh, uh, at the interview. And, you know, and I, I was waiting for that. And I was the first tour that I did, which I said was the four countries in five weeks. I was pleasantly surprised that there are, at least within the cultural affairs departments 
of the American embassies, people who genuinely are interested in engaging with the local community and bringing something empowering and positive to the people that live there. Not everybody who is in the employ of the government is um, uh, using institutionalized thinking. And, and I thought, and I was prepared for it, let me tell you. So I, I went into it with the sarcasm of a black girl from Brooklyn, okay? <laughs> Thinking, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to use this platform the best that I can, but I'm preparing to defend myself if somebody is telling me to do things I don't want to do. But I met a lot of people who really, it really surprised me and it really humbled me. And it reminds me that I have to always remember that I could be wrong about any idea that I have. Because I, I, our diplomacy, uh, international diplomacy has a lot of problems uh, as far as our, how we invade other people's business. But really there's, you know, all these other reasons. Mm -hmm. We we pretend it's for human rights, but it's really, you know, about money and shit like that. But what I'm getting at is that, but within it, there are good people who deserve to be there. And I'm, and I was made proud Mm. many times by those people. So it surprised me. Good. I mean, that's an awesome thing to, to hear. Yeah. Like I know in the military as well, there are people you know, few, there are a few people who are, who are not institutional thinkers as well. And it's always such a breath of fresh air to encounter them. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that not everyone in the state department is, um, you know, invested in colonizing (laughs) and is, is also invested in learning. I I was pleasantly surprised and, and I, and I had many opportunities. I mean, I've done maybe about 15 of those tours outside of my own touring in Europe and et cetera, specifically, you know, grants from state department. Um, I've, that means I've seen several posts within each country mm-hmm. and with their own staff and I, many, many examples. Um, and so it just opened my mind a little bit from my perspective. I mean, I think it kind of speaks to how everything is, Way more complicated in gray area e. I don't know if that's word gray area e. Then, <laughs> um, of course it is. Yeah, well, <laughs> you just now. It. It's gray area esque. Um, like then we want to make it like we want to have very simple narratives to overlay on things. But I think especially, you know, especially with the work you do and getting to meet people all over the world and sort of this project of global solidarity. In a way, it's really hard to kind of throw an easy narrative on top of everything. I think that's, I mean, not to get us off topic, I feel like that's one of the biggest maybe problems with how we respond to things sometimes is we want to just cram everything in a really easy narrative box and have easy answers, but they don't always present themselves that way. It's again, it's organic. It's like, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, again, time to reflect, you know, how many months have we not you know, been home? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about organic things versus synthetic things. Mm. Synthetic things uh, can be in squares, but I can't think of almost any organic thing that is an exact square. Literally our cells are round Mm. They are rounded. But think of 
think of nature and is there anything that in nature that's organic that is an exact box, exact square? We made squares. We made boxes. Yeah. Mm. So when you're trying to like understand the truth of a matter, to know that it's not exactly like a, a multiple choice question. Mm. It's some kind of variation between a few things and and that doesn't necessarily apply to the very next building next door. It's like each one has its own, mm-hmm. you know, thing that you have, like souls. Like we have to take each soul for an individual person and not just assume like everything about that person because we met someone else mm-hmm. that looked like them. Yeah. Oh, well, and of course, I mean, that is... If we all start looking at nuance, then, you know, capitalism dies (laughs) because it requires us to look at everything in these very contrasting, mutually exclusive boxes in which, you know, someone can either be a good person or a bad person. Someone can either be corrupt or um, effective or, you know, someone and it's we miss out on all the yes and, you know, <laughs> we miss out on all of the the gray area-ness. <laughs> we don't just see anything in life as just just anything. Like even just being able to take in sensory information requires so much uh, so much more information than we can consciously analyze. And uh yeah. So even when idea. it comes to our own understanding, we're still missing all the details because it's yeah. so much bigger than the the exact uh, you know plate it's served on. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, I mean it doesn't mean that I don't stand up for things that I I think are wrong, you know, or that I don't have try to have a clear voice, but I try to stay open that things are have individual cases as well, and not to generalize everything because that's kind of dangerous you know when we have this conversation in the anti-militarism you know veterans world a lot about um about you know how to hold multiple truths you know as far as reconciling with um our role in the military industrial complex and our role in dismantling it and um and the ways that you know, our culture, we want to think of, you know, peace as an absence of war. And yes, and it's also like a presence of constructive communication. And, you know, that's just like one example that, you know, comes to my mind regularly. And, you know, that we have in the Veterans for Peace community, where where we're trying to we're trying to both reconcile the fact that we have been um, cogs in in the machine and that we have the power to not only stop being cogs but to like disassemble the machine and uh, and question what needs to take that machine's place uh, and that conversation can't happen if we're looking at you know either. As, as anything is an either or situation. Yeah. I mean, there's so much because extreme takeovers are, by nature are violent. So evolution is progress that happens over time. 
So, but evolution is also a slow process. So that can be some bullshit if so, if something is about like um, injustices that really need to be addressed immediately. You, you're not going to just say, "Oh, this is so evolution." You know, it's like yeah, right. you know, yeah. we, we need to we need to do, we need to acknowledge that there this something is broken if it's broken. Um, I was thinking about there is not one thing that I can think of. If there is a problem, if you ignore it, that it gets better. There isn't anything like if you know there's a hole in your pipe and you ignore it, is it going to get better <laughs> with time? What happens if you ignore something with time? It gets worse. If you find out that you have cancer and you ignore it, does it get better? So once you identify that there is something that has a problem, um, ignoring it is definitely not the solution. But the middle ground, or I don't even want to say middle ground because it sounds so temperate, Mm -hmm. the engaging the people who are in positions of power in the conversation and finding a way, paths to communicate in their language, but get them to understand your language. Am I speaking in a esoterically or like is it- you are but it's beautiful i mean well it's kind of and it's not just sorry i don't mean to be like you're not only being esoteric like you are and also <laughs> multiple truths it's also very it's also very tangible you know the things that that we're um that we're trying to solve here do require being able to communicate past our comfort levels and outside of our own personal perspectives and to use other language just like when we travel in other parts of the world to try to learn the language and not expect the the people and someone from another culture to be able to speak the same language that I speak like you know when we're when we're looking at abolition of any of these toxic structures we have to look at understanding them as well and understanding all the different layers and how you respond on those different layers of a situation and, and, and is there a way, you know, for example, we could, if we, if we make everybody a prototypical villain or hero, right. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand that probably the majority are people who are just doing the best with what they have. And I'm not saying that everyone's doing a good job. I'm saying that not everyone's evil. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that there are people who are really, uh, insidious and vicious and their goals are to absolutely undermine any efforts for peace for example because it doesn't benefit them financially it doesn't benefit them in their position of power right there are those people but many 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 more people are people who probably are ignorant of the facts who have never spoken to someone with a different perspective who Perhaps if we were, were spoken to with a, in a safe space, meaning a, like a, a place, that, a space, an environment where they know everyone was equally respected, would actually hear you out and the other way around. And then you could find that those people would be willing to shift perspectives and, and advocate for the same things you're advocating for. Just because the communication was done in a way that didn't just punch him in the face, but more was an invitational. And that's about healing communications that create and accelerate evolution. Yeah, it's 
beautifully wow, put. really well said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I I would love to just kind of keep delving just a little bit because it's I love having this kind of conversation with um, especially creative type people uh, because it really is like the stuff that art is made of. Thinking about these kinds of conversations, these ideas, uh, radical change and revolution. All the best music I think comes from comes from those I those thinkings may I tell a story yeah. I don't, I, I, I just, a quick quick one yeah. the reason I'm the reason I'm going to tell this story is because it's a small 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 uh window into finding common ground someone who you consider to possibly be on a completely other side of the mm. fence from you I sang in Geneva a year ago I was invited to sing at the United Nations at the General Assembly for, get this, the International Day of Elimination of Violence Against Women. They don't know about hashtags. Is that the longest <laughs> title you have ever heard in your life? The International Acronym very well. <laughs> the International Day of Elimination of <laughs> Violence Against Women. Just throw a few more prepositions in there. Can right we now. just... Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> no in academia <laughs> made that title. <laughs> I say this as someone who works in academia. God help us. Oh or, United, or the United Nations. Right. So, uh, so we, I was invited to be there, but I was pulled aside two or three times because there was anxiety that the new ambassador who was assigned by Trump. So he was, um, this ambassador was newly instated and there was anxiety from the ambassador that this Brooklyn girl was going to come and just say something really disrespectful about the president on from the stage and all of that. And, and I was pulled aside like three times. Like this is the only time I told you, no one ever pulled me aside. This is the only time they were like, you know, they were thinking of pulling the program because they were really thinking that artists are, are just going to bash, you know, this horrible president. So for good reason, before, of course. <laughs> yes. But I, I assured them that this is not the way I wanted to use my platform. I would rather use the platform to you know, reach people with something positive. I don't really want to talk about that guy. But the ambassador wanted to meet me. So I was anxious a little, little bit. And this guy comes waltzing in and he looks like he's 29. And he looked at me and he came with his wife. They like were introduced to me. I was waiting basically in front of his office and he and had been at lunch with his wife, came up to me and I guess he thought I looked like a cool person. So he just warmed up from the first instant, like, Hey, nice to meet you. You know, kind of like that. And I get ushered into the office with just him, wife left. And because of my work empowering women, this man launched into a personal story and he shared with me that someone very, very close to his family had recently been raped mm. and tears came to his eyes and he was very um, transparent with me. And he said, you know, I want to be in a position to stop these things. I want to help. I really want to help 
you know, this is not just, and the, the people they knew who did it, but because they were people in positions of power, no lawyer would take on the case. Mm-hmm. So it was like close to his heart. And he opened up to me in this very like a kind of just honest way that completely created a common ground between us. Mm-hmm. And it was an unaffected communication that we had. And that humanity is the common ground. Mm-hmm. And if I were really cold and just decided you're a, you know, you're a MAGA, you know, maggot, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't, you know, and if I was really like resistant, just assuming, even though it was just a conversation, I'm not saying that policies were changed in this five minute meeting. Mm-hmm. But what I am saying is, is that if I were able to have future conversations, there was a common ground on which I met this person who was, mm-hmm. you could assume was someone I would have nothing in common with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's such a powerful story. Cause I think that's just so illustrative of what, what we need to be trying to do, I think, with folks that seem like the other to us, especially right now, where it's so easy to sit behind a screen and just see the comments somebody posts on social media and completely dehumanize them. And it does concern me that people are mistaking dehumanizing people for actually taking meaningful political action or for looking at those areas of common ground. Again, it's complicated. You can't, you need to call out injustice where you see it. But I also think that not acknowledging the common humanity is potentially more dangerous. Than well, it's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's destructive to forget that human humanity that unites us. It's destructive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's counterproductive to our own causes yeah. because we yes. have a yes. cause that we're fighting for. But when you have a cause that falls on empty and then, uh, you know, on hardened heart or closed ears, it's like, you know, there's, uh, there's a parable in the Bible. Like you throw seed on a soil that's too hard and it doesn't take the seed, then it, you waste the seed. You don't have any fruit from the endeavor because, but if you have a fertile soil an open heart, someone who's listening to you and sees you as a human being then those seeds can take root. Completely. And, you know, that's a really, it's a really important thing, I think, that I try to keep in mind that the systems that we currently live under are deeply, deeply invested in um, keeping us forgetting about our humanity and in shutting down our commonalities and shutting down Um, our ability to connect with one another, because when we are able to remember each other's shared humanity and our organic connectivity that we all have without even trying, much less when we do put in the effort and try, um, then, you know, we're able to, we're able to really subvert everything that's toxic that's been created um, in our world. You know, all of our, you know, our economic systems that places numeric value, monetary value on people based on their role and their, um, you know, so-called importance. It's, it's all based on investing and in keeping us from, from noticing 
how connected inherently and how equally valuable we all are, as soon as we stop, you know, trying to figure out who is more valuable or less valuable, we start realizing that we're, we're, that we're all the same amount of valuable and it's a huge amount. And we're all the same human connected, you know, family, not to get all woo woo, but we're literally all connected organically to each other, like freaking trees. Yeah, dude, like this coronavirus is such a proof. The entire planet is managing the same suffering at the same time for once. Mm. I'm not saying that I'm happy that people are suffering. But what I am saying is it's a shared suffering like we haven't seen in in our lifetime, at least. At the same time, it's not like, oh, I feel so bad about those hungry people over there sucks to be you you know no like every country had to deal with the same problem at the same time and that really reminds us of our of our common ground and also for me music is something that's so incredible anyone from the far left or the far right will come to a show and sing at the top of their lungs a song they love Mm -hmm. at the same time and speaking of how your music connects, before we run out of time completely, I want—I would love to know more about your upcoming projects. And you did—you just released the "You Matter" video. We're going to link to that from um, the show page because it's friggin' awesome. But what else are you? Uh, what else do you have in the works? Well, over the last year, uh, let's say less than two years, I released some independent song singles. Um, so I, uh, one that you mentioned before that you liked is a song named Prettiest, which I kind of yes. wrote a song to my 13-year-old self. There was a time when I used to hate myself and I didn't like my body and all of these things. But through time, I came to understand that true beauty is something that resonates from within. Sustainable beauty is something that comes from your inner power. Um, so Prettiest and the song Unleash Me is uh, about kind of just being released from all the things that feel like they're holding you back so that you could step into your greater potential and just to be free, the feeling of being free and empowered. Um, so those are the songs. And then You Matter is uh, that came out in the last, let's say, less than two years. And right now, I'm, I wrote about 10 songs during coronavirus uh, quarantine days. So um, deciding if I'll put out an album or an EP, but I, I am working on a new single. Um, one song by the name of Home, uh, which is this really cool ballad that I hope I can raise funds for... Um, like immigrant families that are dealing with the separation from their children. But the song itself is Mm. very personal about feeling like I don't know where home is. And that feeling of home is not something you can get from a building or an apartment or a place, but it's actually a feeling that comes from being feeling safe or being with Mm. people you love. Mm. Um, And I'm also working on a one woman show by the name of Legendary Woman. And the one... I'm excited. We're going to do a premiere of it uh, this coming week, uh, a private video performance of it that in the future I will release to the public. 
And it's going through the decades from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, up until present, uh, performing songs from Black American singers that have influenced me and sort of made me who I am. And the show kind of ends with my songs and sort of this, you know, costume changes, like from the 1920s style to the 1980s style to contemporary building up to showing how I became who I am, kind of like that. That's awesome. Wonderful. What a great project to work on while in isolation. <laughs> yeah. um, where can people find you? I'm mostly posting on Instagram these days as far as daily updates. Everything's under my name, Maya Azucena, M-A-Y-A-A-Z-U-C-E-N-A. So if you put like an at symbol or a backslash in front of Maya Azucena, you're going to find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify. Nice. Yeah. And I hope everyone does because all the videos for all the songs that you have, that we've talked about that you just brought up, they're all absolutely powerful and beautiful. Um, That song prettiest really was, yeah, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, my inner 13 year old needed this song too. So yeah, I, I really am so, so excited to keep delving into your work and sharing it with others and, you know, following all of the amazingness that you're producing. I thank you so much for this talk. It was also really wonderful to kind of philosophize on, you know, world issues. And thank you for making that, uh, inviting me to this stage to share with you. I am, I'm honored. I'm glad that Veterans for Peace introduced us. (laughs) All right. Well, so let's talk like once a week at least, because this was really great conversation. (laughs) So I'll talk to you guys. We'll have you on again sometime. (laughs) Thanks. So nice to meet you, Maya. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Emily. It was a real pleasure for me. Awesome. We'll stay in touch. Be well. Have a great evening. Thanks for having me. We'll talk again later. Bye.
attempted to trim my own bangs last night. I was going to say, I thought your bangs looked trimmed, and it doesn't look like you did it yourself. Oh, nice. Well, you can kind of see on this side, I um, was trying to make these layers around my face, and it didn't, it kind of worked on this side, but not, on this side, I just ended up having to cut up into the bang part. It's, it's cute. I like it. It's got a little, like, sort of flippy thing going on here on the side. Yeah, I'm just, um, my hair is getting so long, I really, really want to get, like, some layers and styling done on it, but I'm too afraid of COVID. I know, same. I have this, like, ginormous head blanket, and I'm just, like... (laughs) <laughs> like look it's going in every direction i love your hair though that's so cool it's like so naturally curly people fucking put so much products in their hair to get that they also do that for this hair for the blonde yeah, yeah. i think we're both lucky although it took me until i was like 28 to figure out a few crucial things that you needed to learn and then all of a sudden my hair was manageable but for most of my first part of my life it was not we have a lot of hair knowledge, and different kinds yeah. of hair can get the love that they need. So that's, yeah. that's an upside to this foul yes. period of human yes. history. <laughs> what I did was I actually happened to see a guy at a festival who had hair that I knew was a lot like mine at its best on its best day. And I looked at him and I was like... We have the same hair, but yours looks way better. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and he told me, he was like, I, I only shampoo once a week or once every two weeks sometimes. And I do this, this, this. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Changed my life. I was probably tripping. I feel like I was tripping. Life-changing knowledge from random hippies while you're tripping at a festival is definitely, it's a thing. It's real. It made everything better. <laughs> Once I was able to manage that one unmanageable thing in my life, you yeah, know. <laughs> all the pieces came together. <laughs> I wish. I wish it had only been that That's simple. generally my strategy for learning about crystals, is asking the hippies at the festivals about yeah. the headiest crystals and what they do. So, Yeah. There's much wisdom to be gleaned. Right. Okay, so... Nothing happened this week. It's a really boring no. week. This is all we have to talk about this week. There it's was hair and crystals. Yeah, no, there were there was absolutely no armed insurrection in Washington. That's for sure. Nobody dressed like, you know, Buffalo Man stomping on the on the halls of Congress. <laughs> what? He was like not the only one sporting fur trapper looks. I'm really intrigued by this. Like, fur, we're going to Burning Man, but also we're quasi-fascist. Like, fashion. Yeah. I'm, I wonder if they're Q people. Yeah. Q people love fur, apparently. Who knows? I do think, I mean, from the, the close-ups I saw on some of these people's faces, I think they were on some interesting drugs. Yeah. Q is a hell of a drug. Yeah, I mean, in addition to the ideological drug that's telling them that, you know, everything is fucked up, which it is, you know, everything is just as rigged against them as they think, but they keep drawing that conclusion that, you know, this one guy who hates them is the answer, and that troubles me. Well, yeah, it's like the instinct isn't necessarily wrong. 
Like, mm-hmm. I'll unpack that more before I get canceled for making it sound like I'm promoting Q. But, like, the government is corrupt. Our democracy is broken. Children are systematically abused, although they're more brown children in the Middle East that we don't care about because we bomb the shit out of their homes type of abuse. But, like, or people on the border, exactly. But this shit, like, it does, yeah, exactly. Kids in cages on the border. Like, these things do happen, just not quite in the way that they are putting it together. To the best of yeah. my knowledge. Who knows? Maybe there is an alternative reality where Q is 100% correct about everything. But I don't think I that's mean, this reality. <laughs> I feel like we don't need to reach for that reality when right. it's really easy to see right in front of us uh, what is uh, that there is a large, um, you know, global elite <laughs> rigging that's happening but it's not their saviors are not the people at the that they believe to be at the top of that and I don't um I don't know I would really like to interview all of the people who tried to storm the capitol and find out what they actually do think yeah I mean it's It's kind of a sad irony that, like, a lot of them, I mean, not that I disagree with them going to jail, but, like, they fucking fucked up their lives for this cause. And they had no discernible plan with, like, was Buffalo Man going to be Speaker of the House? Like, (laughs) like, what was going to happen once you got in there? I kind of am interested in exploring the timeline where Buffalo Man becomes Speaker of the House and (laughs) Congress gets called back into session by him right then. (laughs) All shirtless with his face paint and, like banging a gavel or whatever the speaker of the house does did the speaker of the house have a gavel i don't know i don't know but i do know that that man did make it to that place where he stood without getting shot and that is the thing that we all need to be more troubled by than what he was wearing when he got there i think yes exactly i mean i make jokes just because what are you gonna do but like Yeah, it is really troubling that given (laughs) that we've seen that police are more than capable of, um, you know, responding to large groups of people in very violent and repressive ways, that somehow that didn't happen with people who had literal AK-47s and Molotov cocktails. Yeah, to me it seemed like a um, sort of a warning shot. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't I don't think that it's a far stretch to assume that more things like this are going to be happening, um, considering that the angry people are not going away and they're breeding more angry people and they're incapable of noticing when their um, their logics collide and shatter each other. <laughs> well, there was an interesting article. I'll have to, I should have sent it to you before we did this post about how a lot of people on Reddit are now abandoning Trump in like a lot of those groups because, you know, he did his sort of conciliatory after the fact little speech this week where he's like, there's going to be a peaceful transfer of power and like mm-hmm. what happened was wrong and all this stuff. And those people will be right. punished. And that is my message for them. And even if it was theater or not, like, 
the, those people are now going to feel abandoned by daddy. And where is all that rage going to go? Exactly. They're more dangerous now. And they know that the police are generally on their side. Yeah, I saw Blue Lives Matter flags in that crowd. At least one, I'm pretty sure. Maybe my brain just stuck one in there, but... No, there were, like, there were people who were... Yeah, they don't... They don't actually care about the police. They just hate black people. Pretty much. So. (sighs) So... Here we are with that. Um, and, you know, as we've been trying to stay on an up, uh, <laughs> we were like, 2021? Huh? Are you going to be better? Uh, no. I don't think the apocalypse cares about our rules. Not at all. Not in the slightest. We didn't really expect it to be anything but more of a continuous quick uh, like a higher velocity wave maybe with some more like breaks but it's gonna be an intense year at least Mm -hmm. that's that's what the astrology says so yeah yeah um the news cycle had a solid six days i saw people's um festive new year's pictures for like several days in my feed before they were displaced by only a riot, only terrorists, only doom and despair. And then someone someone got a puppy and it was like <gasps> thank yeah, everyone I know is getting puppies or having babies during this. Yeah, tis the season. <laughs> um not enough kittens are being adopted and I just want to put it out there that People need to adopt black cats, especially. Adopt black cats. Ooh, they I don't get adopted cats. enough. Yeah, black cats, I feel like, are um, conduits. They are they make you feel like a little witch. That's what my black cat makes me feel like. Yeah. Well, the moments that she's not throwing up in her little kitty cave, which is... Even witches, familiars, or not familiars, even... even uh... Familiars is right. Familiars, yeah. Even even familiars throw up sometimes, I think. Yeah. So, or a lot, <laughs> which is the case yeah. of my cat. Um, one of my cats. Anyway, yeah, it's, it was interesting doing this after the Meyer interview because the Meyer interview is so much about building connections and trying to find common ground with people. And she has that really powerful story of meeting that ambassador or diplomat who was appointed by Trump. Um, when she was at that International Day Against Violence Against Women. It had some really long, ridiculous title with a lot of prepositions, but it was a day supposed to be, like, organizing against violence against women and having that moment of him opening up to her, you know, a family friend that had been raped and how much that affected him and how he really wanted to do good in his position. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's such a powerful story, and it's interesting to think about that story and then contrast to the things that happened this week and try to think of like is there a way to see some humanity there to try to understand not to let people off the hook I know this is a complicated thing to try to tease out because people are so reactionary now and if you aren't really like one way or the other people tend to assume that you're the other way that you're not saying you are you know what I mean so I'm not saying that like let's just hug it out with these people but like 
what is the motivations there? What is there, is there humanity to be found in what we witnessed on Wednesday? And I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think it's a question worth asking because this yeah. stalemate is not going to end well. <laughs> like, true. no one really gets to be right and win anything right now. Right, it's like a battle of realities, which is really terrifying in some ways, and it's also really hopeful in other ways because it's like, well, whoever can create the better reality quicker kind of gets to win. Um, it's it's really like we, we can make something better happen if we want to, is my, like, the hopeful you know, frame I like to look around it, look at it, look at it in. The troubling thing to me is, though, that when people are convinced um, of a reality that is not, <laughs> like, what, there are only, like, certain ways to get through it. I think music is one of the things you know, like, going back to all the things that, you know, we were talking about with Maya, I feel like music is a, an amazing connector. And um, you can let your guard down with somebody uh, in the context of music and uh, singing, you know, like she was talking about with that um, ambassador, like, in a way that you maybe can't do in a more official forum. Yeah, it's almost, I wonder if I'm going to be able to pull this thought together. We're so focused on trying to help a set of facts win, or at least disprove another set of facts, where maybe the answers are more about these squishy kind of creative spaces. Like, maybe that's more where the creativity and the potential to connect people is at, instead of just trying to disprove facts. On the other hand, it's like, I don't really know how you respond when a bunch of people believe a reality that's, like, so not reality. It's it's complicated. Right. It is. Like, you want to meet people where they're at, but not if where they're at is make-believe. It's like, I, I don't... Like, yes, in a sense, everything is make-believe. You know, life is a dream. Sure. Yeah. I want to be emp empathetic toward people who are really, truly convinced of something that isn't. Um, and, but I, and I want to be able to like communicate with them, but it always comes off as like, they they always respond badly, no matter how nicely I think I'm <laughs> trying to communicate like, Hey, can we just break down the words you're using? Can we just talk about those? And then they're like, but what are your values? And I'm like, like ag mutually agreed upon definitions I have value those I like <laughs> acknowledging that we are on the same planet <laughs> exactly yeah yeah it's weird I mean I um I don't want to get us too off track with this but I think I mentioned like I'm really concerned about some of the censorship stuff that's going to come down the pike because of this like the Patriot mm -hmm. Act 2 type stuff that we may have to contend with um not because I don't think anything to be done and that there shouldn't be consequences for putting misinformation and violent rhetoric out, you know, on the internet, like those do have real world consequences and I'm not going to pretend I know an easy answer. I just really don't trust our government and Silicon Valley for-profit companies to be deciding what gets to be on the internet. And also I do not trust that it will not absolutely cycle back around to bite leftists in the ass, if not harder 
than right-wing people, then, like, it's definitely going to affect leftists online. So people mm-hmm. need to be real fucking careful about what they're casting their lot with right now. And maybe that is yeah. the right answer. I don't know. I don't know fucking anything right now. Anyone who acts like yeah. they know anything, I'm amazed at them. But, like, yeah. we should just be careful and think about, like, what the slippery slope we might be pushing the cart down is. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's going to be interesting to see what alternative forms of communication pop up as a result of these of the tech giants kind of flexing like this. My takeaway um, from all of it is, firstly, that they could have done this at any time and chose not to. They made a fucking killing off of Trump. I mean, Twitter. Exactly. Like, how noble of Twitter, like, a week before. They weren't told to by any government organization. They just all decided to. When they decided personally, as organizations, that they had had enough. And... There had nothing to do with, like, when he actually should have been cut off. Like, so, like, I look at it as they are doing this performative thing that it could entirely be intended to help get uh, get public support up for censorship. Um, although I think if censorship is happening, it's going to happen. Um, no matter whether people support it or not, that's the beauty of censorship. People don't have to support it. You just shut the people down who don't, and bam, consensus. I know. <laughs> I, it's hard to care about these things cause sometimes because it's like, I am so powerless. Like, literally, it's going to happen no matter what I do, no matter how loud I scream about it. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that conservatives feel like they're the ones who are being silenced right now because he's being silenced. But the thing is, like, he's not even really conservative. Like, he's just completely a narcissist. Like, he only serves himself. So it's like, conservatism and conservatives aren't being silenced. One of them has been banned from all these platforms, but, like, can still call a press conference with the national media at any time like <laughs> like just a few companies being like no we're done thanks we're good and we're getting way more good press off of kicking you off now than we ever got from having you on after so, all hey. the press we got from your presence on our platforms oh my god like he they're throwing him out just like everyone else you know he's just getting dropped like like it's it's this is the time like they all decided together this was the time well they're gonna be scrambling to figure out another money maker now because the media spent did nothing but cover trump's twitter feed for four years and i'm just i i like again it's so funny in a way like oh yeah now you fucking have moral qualms about this shit like a bunch of like asshats in silicon valley making worth billions of dollars and the fucking media conglomerates that have made a killing covering every time Trump fucking farts into a microphone. It's now you're having second thoughts about it and you're going to do the right thing. Cool. (laughs) Exactly. It's so performative. It's so it's insulting really. When you think about it, it's like, look, the only way to respond to him ever back before he was back when we were all laughing at him, writing down that stupid escalator that was the time to 
stop to have a collective <laughs> conversation and be like, he means it and we're stopping now because we know what he is. Because they all do. They all know. And But he was just the exact perfect person to do the thing that needed to be done, which was be the scapegoat. Yeah. I mean, it is just sort of a domino effect of dysfunction <laughs> that maybe is human nature, but is very uniquely American and we've never contended with it. And yet again, people are surprised something happened, like what happened on Wednesday. And it's like, yeah. I mean, it was kind of surprising. Like the thing in and of itself was surprising, right. but like the actual like possibility of the thing was not surprising. Well, not maybe it was all. surprising in so much as you didn't really think the cops would let them waltz in there. But then if you actually take a minute to think about the cops and who they support, then that also should not be that surprising. Yeah, exactly. Like, as, I, I, as soon as I knew that was happening, I was like, well, the cops are on their side. How are they going to play this? Are they going to, like pretend to stop them but not really but they like walked them right in and it's like okay cool well that's a pretty strong signal then and um yeah I think the um the shock wasn't there as that it was happening as much as that it was so overt you know how like in organizing an action when you consider um getting press for that action just as good of, of just as much of a win as um, you know carrying out the action itself because it's it's a show of strength. Um, I feel like that was that was a show of strength. And there were maybe some coordinator, a couple of coordinators in there who were like, let's go do this. And then a bunch of weirdos that just jumped on board like you have always. And the weirdos are the ones with the buffalo horns who are making the big, um, you know, visual shenanigan, and then the people who have a plan are quietly carrying it out. And, you know, when people are like, oh, they failed because they didn't take over the government, it's like, no, they succeeded because they showed that they've already taken over the government. I want to, and I want to see hope and like the, the, and like us being able to look at that and be real about it and be like, now what? That's where I want to be like hopeful and not be like, oh, I'm terrified. Like, in a way, I'm terrified, but in another way, I'm like, all right, like, let's, this problem is showing, showing us exactly what it is. Let's believe it. And again, it comes back to the question of, like, how to respond. And where are there maybe spaces to try to see some humanity there? Because if we just think we're going to win through the power of facts and the power of voting one team in or the other... Like, it's, that's not the site of action anymore for these things. I don't totally know what the site of action is, but it's not fucking working. Like, people right. are more entrenched than ever. And, like, at some point, like, we're going to let the world burn and we're going to be on fire fucking arguing about different sets of things that we think are facts. Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, we need to acknowledge that this entire nation is, like, a massive gaslighting operation. Exactly. Like, can we please do that? Like... Why why are we not yet able to look at literally everything we've been taught in schools critically and say, like, why? Why are we taught this when it's clearly bullshit? Like, we can talk to we can talk to indigenous people 
who have been experiencing all of, you know, the genocide and the repercussions of genocide. And we can talk to um, people who are descendants of slaves who are still alive. Like, we can talk to, like, we can have all this access. Like, why are we still clinging to these antiquated fairy tales? Like, and that's what it is. It's like, I feel like what's happening is people are just desperate to cling to these, these notions that they've been taught are real for them and and not for other people and they really want to cling to this superiority and to the gaslighting it makes them feel safe I don't know but it's like like we're stuck in an abusive relationship with our freaking narcissist partner the United States (laughs) right not just Trump the United States yeah and like we need to get away, but we can't because we're an entire nation and we're all freaking out in different ways for the same reasons, but coming to different conclusions because some people are more successfully gaslit in different directions than others. Like, it's so hard to break out of it, but we really, really have to because we're losing our collective shit. Well, and I mean, if there's no other commonality here, it's that no one is happy with the direction things are going. No right. one. But just like in the general human direction, no one is happy. So if we're not happy, at least we can all agree on that. So I guess then how maybe it's just about creating something entirely different than what the options are. I don't know how yeah. you start, but at least it's worth raising the question about that as a strategy because fucking are these old school strategies aren't working. Of course, yeah. The, the thing that happens, though, is that people still want to cling to this notion that we're the best and the freest and the most and we aren't and we never have been and we won't be and it's kind of like I realize it's hard like it's a moral injury like we talk about moral injury with veterans like uh, in the veterans groups that I'm in about how like participating in a war that you realize went against your moral code it creates a moral injury and it's kind of similar when you it's it's the same thing like the patriotism thing once you realize that it's it's all just smoke and mirrors that it's all just like this shiny distraction from the fact that we live in like a brazen corporatocracy and like they're telling us that we have this democracy like no we have some democratic processes within an oligarchy yeah we have the illusion of freedom and as soon as we can acknowledge that and stop being like we're the freest how do we get more free no one's more free than us then we can be like oh holy shit like maybe some other nation will let us stay with them for a minute while we get our shit together it's like cliche to say but there's a lot of opportunity in crisis to quote homer simpson crisis (laughs) (laughs) I think if you can kind of take a step back from all this stuff which is really fucking hard I realize and see like well what is the lesson here and what am I personally being called to do and what kind of person am I being called to be in response to all this I feel like that's maybe a site of action that's more meaningful than trying to assume you're going to win a contest of narrative like yeah. trying to be like am i the kind of person that can create connection yeah i should probably i can that is a note i can i can 
write to myself and oh, should write to myself me regularly. Too. It's so hard. It's really hard. Ugh. When you're like, when you're talking to somebody and they're like using words completely wrong, you know, like, oh my God, like, yeah, the, the, the logic center of my brain says like, let's just correct those definitions and then we can get through to this person. And like, maybe ugh, as exhausting as it is and as futile as it feels like the answer is to go down their rabbit hole and be like, all right, let me tell you about my values. And like, ugh, because like, I feel like my values are represented in my desire for every human being to have healthcare and education and not have to go to war. I feel like that's a pretty strong indicator of my values. But when somebody thinks that that equals Marxism and Marxism equals the devil and the devil equals bad, which are all assumptions I'm definitely not interested in making, you know, hey, if we have to have uh, if we have to have understanding for, you know, the good Germans, I feel like we can acknowledge that the devil isn't all bad. I mean, he has a job to do. (laughs) Exactly. He's just deviling. Devil's got a devil. Yeah, no one else wanted to devil. <laughs> exactly, it's his job. He doesn't even have a name. He's the devil. I guess Satan, you know. Anyway, we digress, eh? But, um, but yeah, like, I think I can probably get better at, like, talking about what are the things that really are important to me because they're really important to most people, I think. I don't think most people want to live under a fascist regime they just like maybe don't know how to make that align with their values that have been given to them by a political party even the people that i was just jokingly calling quasi-fascists and fur trapper outfits um, they thought it was about freedom like in their brain they thought it was about freedom so So i know it's weird I think this might be too dark, so I don't know, we'll probably have to cut this part. So I mentioned in the sh- the notes when we were talking about what to talk about in this post that, like, I just watched this documentary on Jonestown, mm-hmm. and it was fucking wild. Like, you know the whole story with Jonestown, right? So Jim Jones started the People's Temple, and what I didn't know about him was his original, like, vision was actually, like, he was anti-capitalist, he was anti-racist, he wanted, he was against segregation, like, he had this image, like ideal image of like a multicultural um moneyless society basically mm-hmm. then jim jones fucking lost his shit started mm-hmm. doing a bunch of drugs like most cults sexually abusing people etc but what the main thing with jonestown was that like all these people just eventually bought into this one man's reality and he broke them down to the point that he moved 900 of them down to the rainforest or I don't know if it's the rainforest, like the forest in Guyana, where they had Jonestown. And they were basically in a prison camp run by Jim Jones, fucking eating rice and listening to Jim Jones scream at them on a loudspeaker all day. And they would do these suicide drills because his thing was that the world was so corrupt that it would be better and more noble to just leave the world as an act of rebellion. So eventually people, the senator from California went down there with a whole crew to try to investigate Jonestown because people's families that were in California were like, he was based out of San Francisco, were like, what the fuck is happening? I want my family back. (laughs) Like, I haven't heard from them. And 
they got a few people to leave and started seeing some of, like, they were presented a very, like, happy version of what was happening at Jonestown. I mean, people were being, like, given minimal calories a day and working on a fucking farm for 12 hours a day while Jim Jones screamed at them over a loudspeaker. But they thought what they were doing was right. So anyway, Senator comes, they get some people, Jim Jones sends some of his goons after him at the airport, and they fucking open gunfire on the people that are trying to leave and kill a U.S. senator and some of his aides, I think, and some journalists, as well as defectors from the cult. So he knows shit's over. So they get almost 900 people to commit suicide that night, including people that fed cyanide to their children. <laughs> like, this is really dark. But, like, people literally, like, they gave it to the children first because they, they knew that when the parents' children weren't there anymore, they wouldn't want to live. And they wow. thought that that was that they were doing the right thing. So I think wow. not everybody did, but if you didn't drink the poison, the goon shot you. So, But, like, that's a really extreme example, though, of how the people that did survive through luck or fate or they just didn't go down to Guiana or whatever, you know, to them it was like this seemed so normal, and it was just this gradual spiraling of their reality into Jim Jones's reality. To the point where, like, I think up until 9-11, that was the biggest mass death of Americans in mm. history. I didn't realize that. I do I do know, though, that you're right about um, the spiraling into another person's normal. It has, um, at least in my personal experience, it feels a lot like you know, the church in some ways, but also my reform school was very, um, it was, it was run by people who had been part of a, um, sort of fringy AA based cult in upstate New York, Eastridge, um, which I'm sure they don't call themselves a cult, the Eastridge community. I don't Those know. cults don't tend to call themselves cults. They don't. No, but their people act super culty, which is how these people acted. And they really were expert at, um, you know, turning people who really did not want to be there into um, very good little parrots of the of uh, of their program. Uh, it is it's truly it's truly effective. Those those methods that are happening and. And on a national scale, we've had it um, in our education system forever. So the, I, let's say, like, the brighter note to to end on, hopefully, maybe, I, I, I don't know if we, like, the brighter note, I think, to, uh, to take us in to uh, the rest of the new year, whatever it may bring, I feel like, for me, is that we now are seeing like all of the shit show laid bare you know the covers are off like the inner workings of the machine are very transparent we can see all of the con complicit uh behavior across parties um and uh, we can see class warfare it's very very obvious and we have a choice now to reject it and move into the next thing and that is where we have power is there are people whether it's you know QAnon or like the Jim Jones example that will take advantage of 
really unstable, scary times and try to present you with a narrative. So maybe the best thing we can do to respond to this is take our own power back and be like, what are the places in my life where I am maybe susceptible to narrative? And what are better narratives I could be telling? Right. Yeah. And I think also being very careful to make sure that the narrative we're telling is our own. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're if we're telling somebody else's narrative, there's it's usually a sign that it's not quite right. You know, I like to I realized that when I went to Nicaragua the first time and came back and I was I, I felt like I was kind of spouting talking points because all the people I had spoken to had had the same things to say. And I started, you know, thinking a little more clearly, like, you know, if I'm using someone else's words and I can't come up with what I'm trying to say in my own words, um, then maybe there's something going on that I need to look further at until I can say it in my own words. And Maya did talk a lot about that, just um, how to say things in your own words and how telling your own story can be a great connector for people again if we want to try to look at ways to connect instead of divide telling Mm -hmm. our own stories exactly to telling our own stories telling our own (laughs) stories Co-edited, co-produced, and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Emily Yates. Music on this episode is provided by Maya Azucena. The songs are called You Matter, Fearless, and Prettiest. And you can find them all and more at mayaazucena.com. We hope you're doing well out there. Stay in touch with us at What the Folk Pod on all the socials, and we'll be back very soon with even more exciting conversation as we continue on with this delightful apocalypse. Till then, uh, we hope you're taking care of each other and uh, fighting the fascists as the need arises. Something mama would say